Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn, welcoming you back to New Books and Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I have the privilege to discuss Laura Eastlake's Ancient Rome and Victorian Masculinity, which examines Victorian receptions of ancient Rome from the French Revolution to the First World War, with a specific focus on how those receptions were deployed to create usable models of masculinity. Romans in Victorian literature were at once pagan persecutors, pious statesmen, pleasure-seeking decadents, and heroes of empire. These manifold and often contradictory representations were used as vehicles equally to capture the martial virtue of Wellington, for example, and to condemn the deviance and degeneracy of Oscar Wilde. In the works of Thomas Macaulay, Wilkie Collins, Anthony Trollope, H. Ryder Haggard, and Rudyard Kipling, among others, Rome emerges as a contested space with an array of possible scripts and signifiers, which can be used to frame masculine ideals or to vilify perceived deviance from those ideals, though with a value and significance often very different to ancient Greek models. Using approaches from literary and cultural studies, reception studies, and gender studies, and ranging across the topics of education, politics, empire, and late Victorian decadence, this volume offers the first comprehensive examination of the importance of ancient Rome as a cultural touchstone for 19th century manliness and Victorian codifications of masculinity. Dr. Laura Eastlake is a senior lecturer in English literature at Edge Hill University in the UK, with degrees in the classics, classical reception, and Victorian literature, with additional research interests in sensation fiction, Victorian humor and substance use, and the late Victorian Gothic. She joins me today to discuss her latest book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Dr. Laura Eastlake to talk about her book, Ancient Rome and Victorian Masculinity. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Yeah, I guess... Well, I guess as an undergraduate, I studied classics at the University of Glasgow with some fantastic um, tutors there. And even as a classicist, I was interested in the literary side of things. So I I was interested in narrative texts and often that really porous boundary always, I guess, but particular in writers like Herodotus or Virgil in the ancient world between historical narrative and fiction. So as a field, then I guess I'm interested in narrative and how cultures or groups or particularly particular authors tell their own stories and the scripts and signifiers that they're using to do that. So when I was fortunate enough to take an elective module in Victorian literature, it became very clear to me that the 19th century was a period where the ancient world was very much used as one of those scripts and signifiers in all sorts of places and ways. So even before I really knew what reception theory was, I was interested in that. Uh, so now I teach English literature at Edge Hill University, and although my classical background means that I'm lucky enough to be able to do um, interdisciplinary work as well, I like curating exhibitions. I'm currently the curator of an exhibition called Fatal Attraction on the the long history of the femme fatale from the ancient world to the silver screen to kind of complement my book on masculinities. Oh, that's fantastic. So, okay, tell us maybe how you came to write this particular book. So this book on men really grew out of that nexus point between classical reception studies and feminist scholarship. So there'd been some great work done by scholars like Richard Jenkins on the Victorians and ancient Greece. 
um, Jenkins's work is a, is a big history looking at where the Victorians were using Greece in their culture, in their literature, in the various genres they were writing. And then from that, there were these this sort of run of fantastic feminist works by Isabel Hurst and Yopi Prinz and Tracy Alverson and others about how Greece was then used um, and how those Greek models were used by and to talk about women in the 19th century. So with Rome then, at the time that I started writing the book, Norman Vance's book, The Victorians and Ancient Rome, was pretty much the only major work looking solely at the legacy of Rome as opposed to Greece or as opposed to a kind of broader idea of the classics more generally. So I wanted to take that next step in the same way that Hearst and others had done and think about what Rome meant for Victorian conceptions of gender, in this case, masculinity, in the same way that others had done for Greece and femininity. Okay. So I thought maybe we could begin with a brief discussion of classical reception for any listeners who aren't familiar with the interests and methods of this field. And along these lines, I'm thinking too about what you were just talking about, about uh, the your emphasis on Roman reception in Victorian England, as opposed to the more common examination of Greek reception. So could you say a few more words about these topics? Yeah, so reception studies as a field, in essence, if I had to boil it down, is the idea of how a point of reception, now that point could be a culture, a person, a group, how that point of reception looks to a past or to texts from the past, and how it uses the past to understand and think about the present. So At its heart, reception is the idea that meaning is constructed at the point where a text is received rather than being set in stone at the point where a text is written. So uh, Kenneth Haynes says that reception is not a sequence of misreadings continually corrected by the progress of scholarship, but rather a demonstration that a great work of art is always toujours an act. Its truth is never finished. So reception, I guess, is not that trying to clear out all the different readings that happen historically between us and a work like Homer or a work like um, Virgil, but rather it's that acknowledgement that texts are not, as Julia Geiser says, kind of Teflon-coated baseballs hurtling forward through time, that texts are sticky things and meanings and ideas stick to them as they're retold and reinterpreted by different generations. It would be a little bit like me asking you, who is your fa- who's your favorite um, figure or character from the ancient world? And your answer to that would probably tell me quite a bit about you and your values and the way you want to be perceived. So in a way, I'm doing that on a big scale with the Romans and asking them about their favorite use, you know, their favorite figures from the ancient Roman world to see what I can find out about Victorian masculinities. So I also want to ask you about the significance of the Victorian context. Was there anything particular about their understanding of history or their conception of their own place in history that comes to bear on the way they do classical reception, so to speak? That's a great question. Yeah, I think I think periods in history, including our own, you do see these particular affinities between ages and certain ages or centuries that have gone before. I think um, there's been a lot of talk recently about how our own decade, I guess, is, is fascinated with that earlier age of revolution, the romantic period from, I guess, from things like Hamilton through to Bridgerton. But the Victorians, I would say, definitely saw themselves as having a particular affinity with Rome in different ways and in different sort of spheres throughout the century. But obviously, there is a an archaeological impetus happening. There are excavations that are gathering pace in the Mediterranean that are shedding new light on Roman 
the Roman world and its kind of material culture. Um, and similarly, um, Napoleon has been doing similar things in France, which has very much opened up those avenues of exploration and tourist industries throughout the 19th century. Um, but even from as early as the 1830s, I think John Stuart Mill talks about how we live in an age of particular historical mindedness that we as Victorians or soon to be Victorians, he's writing just before Victoria comes from the, to the throne, have a kind of unique insight into the Roman world. And I think partly what he's thinking of there is the idea of an imperial age that increasingly throughout the century, Britain is making connections between ancient empires and increasingly the Roman empire and its own worldview. And also then for every um, kind of imperialist connection that the Victorians are making with Rome, you get these other voices, this kind of constellation of voices who are interested in other aspects like Oscar Wilde and Villiers de Lille Adam and other writers of the decadence movement who look to the kind of um, alternative or, or kind of more controversial aspects of Roman history, whether it be Nero or those sort of notoriously bad emperors, to construct other kinds of ideas and narratives and, for my purposes, masculinities out of that Roman past. And you make a really interesting comment, and I'll quote you here, that, quote, in Victorian writing about Rome, the act of reception itself is necessarily and often knowingly made to function as part of an articulation or validation of a particular masculine ideal. And that's the end of the quote. So are you saying that merely being interested in Roman history itself was seen as a masculine pursuit for the Victorian man? Ooh, I think so. Although I think you're right to use that word knowingly there, both in the sense that Rome and particularly Latin, the Latin language, were quite a deliberate way that specifically elite male culture policed its own boundaries. So Latin language, for the most part, is maintained as a privilege of middle and upper class boys, often to the exclusion of working class children and women. And it's a requirement for those young men to progress into university careers, into legal professions, officer training academies and such. So, But there's also a sense of knowledge, that knowledge and of these elite male communities being able to tap into shared knowledges of classical references, Latin tags and what was often a really dull and sometimes quite brutal shared experience of learning Latin at school. So that all becomes part of that script and those props by which you could perform masculine identity. So there is a definite connection there between the learning about Rome and the learning to be a man, at least in those kind of more elite contexts. So for much of the 19th century, knowing classics and specifically knowing Latin was both a kind of maker and a marker of elite manhood. And of course, that's not to say that Rome doesn't thrive in the popular imagination as well. We find it in popular periodicals and fiction and illustration. So from those big equestrian reenactments of ancient battles at Astley's Amphitheatre, through to these vast spectacular toga plays later on, which are the sort of forerunners of Hollywood swords and sandals epics. All that this state of classics isn't changing over the course of the century, uh, because it does, it, it, it pluralizes and it's very kind of malleable for different uses. But I think, yeah, there is definitely something um, kind of interestingly useful about classics and discussions of what it means to be a man and for constructing masculinities. 
And you mentioned that malleability. So you explained that the Victorian period saw an evolution of accepted definitions and performances of masculinity, and that these correspond to their shifting interpretations of the Roman masculine ideal. And so you organize your book around four Victorian styles of masculinity, if you will, and each emphasizes a particular set of qualities and draw on Roman stories and characters for its justification. So let's start with the first style. Let's start with the theme of education and the ideal of the man of letters, which we've kind of already hinted at. So what significance did ancient Rome have for the Victorian schoolboy? Yeah, so um, the word style there that James Eli Adams in 1995 in his book, Dandies and Desert Saints, uses that term, styles of masculinity, um, for thinking about that plurality of um, masculine identities and how they get performed by different groups and individuals. And that's been really central to the way I've approached this study and its refusal to talk about any single stable way of being able to be masculine in the 19th century. As for the Victorian schoolboy and the man of letters, I think a lot of Victorian schoolboys probably felt rather stuck with Rome. At least for middle and upper class boys, the curriculum was very heavily weighted towards Latin. So there's a popular schoolboy rhyme from the 19th century that goes, Latin is a language as dead as can be. It killed the Romans and now it's killing me. So much, (laughs) it's brilliant, isn't it? Um, And much of the school week would involve learning Latin grammar and lots of translation exercises and composition exercises and um, often ancient uh, retellings of ancient stories like Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome were remained popular in schools until into the 20th century and and championed a sort of sportsman-like physical sense of virtue. But I think at the same time, to, to talk about that idea of the man of letters, at the same time as that very physical, hardy, robust style of masculinity is being promoted in schools, there's a parallel sort of quieter admiration for the intellectual boy, the boy who will become the man of letters, who will be a writer rather than a fighter, and who will wield a pen instead of a sword. And you see this most clearly, I think, in Rudyard Kipling's schoolboy stories, Storky and Co., partly because they're an, exa- they're an exaggerated piss take of earlier schoolboy fiction like Tom Brown's School Days. And they're set in a military training academy like the one that Kipling himself was sent to. So there's an expectation in these stories that these boys are being trained to be soldiers in a way that then highlights the man of letters or the boy of letters in this case as as standing out more clearly so it means that be, so the character of Storky is very much the, the the heroic warrior figure of these stories but the character of Beetle who is less athletic who's short-sighted he's not heading for the army and he's very much based on Kipling himself so Kipling tells us this stands out by contrast and by the end of the stories Kipling manages to to finish them on this idea that, yes, Storky is the heroic and strong great warrior of empire, but without Beetle, who we learn at the very end has been the narrator of these stories the whole time, Storky's name would be lost to history if it hadn't been written down. So Kipling draws this kind of symbiotic relationship, I think, between the man of action and the man of letters in the same way that great heroes like Achilles or Aeneas would be lost to us if it weren't for the literary efforts of Homer and Virgil. No, no, that's okay. I was just reading a chapter about that recently, and I just loved the idea that Ovid had this 
like he just they were doing literary criticism back then like he just had this vision that empire was created on the backs of poets who could communicate the idea of empire right just like what you're saying yeah sure you've got the men of action but you have to have the people putting it in a narrative frame to make sense of it right i just love that but yeah absolutely um there's a there's a great line from horace's odes in fact which is one of the most widely translated texts by boys in um, Victorian schools where Horace says many heroes lived before Agamemnon but all are oppressed in unending night unwept and unknown because they lack a dedicated poet so yeah between between Ovid and Horace and we can see that connection being made even in antiquity as a form of, kind of literary criticism. Fantastic. So next you look at the ideological importance of Rome for leadership and the political British man. So you say that comparisons to Rome were seen as potentially problematic, even dangerous, because of the way they were employed by the French revolutionaries and then Napoleon. So how did this come up in political discourse? Yes, this is a really interesting moment in my research. It's a kind of nail biter because having spent quite a long time establishing that British boys, uh, the middle and upper classes were learning Latin and using this as a way of, of talking to each other and cementing their identities, the obvious place to look for continuations of that seemed to be the political sphere. And, you know, one of the most elite boys clubs of the time by looking in Hansard's records of parliamentary debates. And at first... By starting at the beginning in the 1820s, 1830s, I found pretty much crickets. Um, I was expecting this wash of classical illusions and found relatively little. And when I started to think about why, the short answer is I discovered that it's all to do with Napoleon. Uh, Britain had come through those wars with France, fighting a regime that had very deliberately and overtly adopted Roman models as a way of constructing of civic virtues and national masculinity, that it was something of a, a, a hot potato for Britain to to try and do likewise then. So from the earliest days of the French Revolution under Robespierre, we get that kind of cultural fascination and glorification of the early Roman Republic, figures like Marcus Junius Brutus, who was responsible for the overthrowing of the kings of Rome and who was Rome's first consul in 509 BC. It makes sense from a reception studies point of view that the French revolutionaries overthrowing the Ancien Regime of hereditary monarchy would see themselves in a figure like Marcus Junius Brutus. And then, of course, with Napoleon and the rise of um, Napoleonic regime, he has some pretty tricky terrain to navigate too in terms of classical reception. How do you make yourself a one-man ruler of a state that despises monarchy? But, of course, Rome offers a really useful precedent for that too in the form of Augustus, the first emperor. And Valerie Hewitt's done some really great um, work on this if anyone wants to, to read about it in more detail. But we see the Napoleonic regime echoing many of the strategies and aesthetics of the Augustan one, the kind of cult of personality of the emperor and not just him, but his family, um, Napoleon being a massive patron of the arts and especially neoclassical art. My book starts with a very famous and in some ways very funny sculpture of the Roman god Mars, which was commissioned by Napoleon from Canova. And it has Napoleon's face on the, the kind of semi-nude sculpture of the Roman god Mars. And he, Napoleon was so anxious that this statue might fall into British hands that he arranged for its transport on a ship where it could be jettisoned to the bottom of the sea if there was any risk of it being taken by the British. And of course, the implication of all of this for Britain is that having modelled itself so intensely on Roman models, the French state is also invested in presenting Britain as a kind of new Carthage to their Rome, a kind of rival state destined to be 
defeated by a greater power. So after the defeat of Napoleon, then it becomes temporarily very urgent that Britain stake a claim to Rome to kind of take back that power of reception for British national masculinity and to refute that Carthaginian connection. And as part of this process, incidentally, if you if you were wondering about the fate of the statue, it does in fact end up in British hands and is presented to the Duke of Wellington as a gift. In fact, it said his friends used to hang their umbrellas on Napoleon when they came to visit. But after that point, once British domestic politics starts to heat up with calls for political reform in the 20s and 30s, and it looks for a while like revolution in Britain might be a very real possibility, then Rome very quickly becomes, as I said, too much of a hot potato. How do you use Rome without risking those revolutionary associations that had become so dominant in France? And so the result is, in the political sphere at least, references to Rome are pretty thin on the ground for a while while Britain navigates those quite choppy waters of political reform and political masculinity, of course. Yeah, I think the statue is an amazing symbol um, for all of these kind of uh, anxieties and sort of fragilities, if you will, surrounding how masculinity is performed and protected. And it's so funny the way it ends up um, in Britain. And you have a picture of it, don't you? A full page image of the statue? It's right at the start of the book. I thought the statue deserved to be front and center in the introduction. And this, I just imagining Napoleon freaking out that he created this, um, you know, massive symbol of his of his dominance and his masculinity, and then he just sweats about what's going to happen to it, and he'd rather see it at the bottom of the ocean, and then of course it backfires. I just, it's such an image. It is. It's it's very very funny, but also very telling about that conflict over not just a conflict between two states, but between two men, I think, as representative of their states, right. Wellington and Napoleon, over the power of reception. Who gets to decide what Rome means to any given moment or any given nation? So that yeah. battle over the statue is very much a battle over the power of masculine, masculinity and reception as well. Absolutely. And so next you examine these themes in the work of Anthony Trollope as well, who's a very uh, political writer. Um, As I understand it, his novels often feature um, men who are in politics as well as the kind of behind the scenes political wrangling. So tell us, um, well, I was going to ask you why Trollope? Maybe I've sort of somewhat answered that question already, but what do you find here? I guess, yeah, I mean, I wasn't expecting Trollope to take center stage like his own moment in the spotlight in the part of the book in the way he did but in the context of political receptions I guess as you say it makes perfect sense Trollope's Palliser novels the series he wrote between the 1860s and 70s are novels of political life and questions I guess whether it's possible to be a good man and a good politician and the characters are politicians prime ministers and leading families of the day and Trollope himself famously stood for office in the Beverly election he wasn't elected in the end, but he was also a kind of hobbyist classicist. So he writes translations and lives of Julius Caesar and Cicero in that same period that he's working on the Palliser novels. And we can see a sort of cross-pollination of ideas between those texts in those decades. And I think what happens is that I, in the book, I chart how Caesar at first seems to serve for Trollope as a shorthand for political energy, sort of reforming zeal in the novel. But as time goes on, as we get further into the series, Trollope seems to find a lot more to admire in what he presents as the oratorical skills and the respect for tradition of a figure like Cicero. 
as his central character, the Duke of Omnium, goes through this sort of stellar rise and yet somehow ultimately disappointing career getting to the highest office in the land and the prime minister, but then having to step down for a range of reasons and retreating into quiet conservatism that I think Trollope sees as quite Ciceronian. Uh, And as part of that novel, the prime minister, the Duke of Omnium, does skirt perilously close to comparisons that Trollope makes between ultimately the fate of Caesar and also other Roman figures like Coriolanus. So it's sort of almost a political tragedy. And then the main character seeks solace in the Ciceronian parallel instead of the Caesarian one. Hmm. Let's move on to think about imperial manliness. Um, Perhaps the theme most familiar to our listeners will be the comparison of Victorian Britain with Rome as conquering empires. And you focus on how Britain initially compares itself to Greece uh, when it's primarily a naval and commercial enterprise, but later when its imperialism is involved or evolved to more of an expansionist land-based project, a comparison to ancient Rome becomes more apt. So how do these comparisons influence Victorians' evolving notions of masculinity? Yes, there's a there's a really quite interesting and quite stark shift in how the empire presents itself over the course of the Victorian period and how it's using the ancient world as a way of talking about both the imperial project as a whole, but also people and particularly the men who served it. So early on, as you say, we see the empire in the late 18th and early 19th centuries being represented as very much a naval empire based on the idea of trade. And it's a narrative, often a very propagandist narrative, of course, which um, the ancient Athenian empire seems a better fit for for talking about. The Athenian empire was built on the naval might of that Greek city-state. And of course, by looking to Greece, I think Victorian culture and politics were able to dance around those problematic associations of Roman slave-owning and brutal blood sports at a time when abolition of slavery was one of the foremost political issues of the day. Because whilst Greece, of course, was also a slave-owning state, it doesn't seem to have posed the same ideological problems for the Victorian imagination, because Athens' slaves weren't usually coming from the northern regions of Europe like Britain, nor was Athens persecuting Christians in the way that Rome later would. So the Victorians were able to look to Greece with very rose-tinted spectacles and use it as a way of glorifying the naval enterprise of empire. The shift then sort of comes gradually and then all at once, I guess. Um, One of the big departure points is the so-called Indian Mutiny of 1857, this violent uprising of sepoy troops against British control and equally violent retaliation by British forces. And so the illusion of the British Empire as this benign trading organisation is violently shattered there. And we find in newspaper commentaries of the time and in the first books written on the so-called Indian Mutiny, claims like, uh, we require a little of the old Roman spirit, you know, and how we deal with these kinds of uprisings. And it reads like quite a sinister call for a more militaristic model of empire that's no longer so invested in this illusion of mutual trade. It's also the point that the East India Company has disbanded, and Queen Victoria in 18... 76 is declared Empress of India, and even that title is a Roman one. So there were these lengthy debates in Parliament about what title Victoria should hold. Should she be Queen? Should she draw on that kind of Saxon legacy? Or should she be Empress of India? Because, of course, some um, 
commentators at the time are worried about tapping into that idea of decline and fall of the Roman Empire if they were to call Victoria Empress. But eventually it's decided, and I quote from Parliament here, as the Roman Emperor was king over other kings, so the Queen is sovereign over sovereign princes. So the Royal Titles Bill then gives that official sanction to the use of Rome for talking about empire. And as you go further into that high imperial period of the 80s and 90s, you see that taking full form in the way that British culture talks about its empire. So you get these big histories written by people like Lord Cromer, the Controller General of Egypt, on imperialism then and now, drawing these parallels between the ancient Roman world, its infrastructure and its ideals, and the British Empire. But they're always quite careful to treat ancient Rome like a kind of, almost like a kind of rocket booster. They use it for their purposes, but they then jettison it quite clearly before they get into those problems of decline and fall for the empire. (laughs) Nice. Um, So you turned to Wilkie Collins' novel, Antonina, to demonstrate how Roman imagery was mobilized to support the mid-19th century ideas about the civilizing mission of empire um, and uh, and how it shapes closely to the associated figure of the imperial man. So what's going on in Antonina? What is going on in Antonina? That is a great question. (laughs) Do you know, sometimes I'm not even sure that Wilkie Collins himself knows exactly what's going on in Antonina, but for anyone who hasn't read the novel, it's actually Collins's first published novel as a fairly young man. He writes it in 1850, just before he enters Lincoln's Inn to train as a lawyer and kind of enter into that legal world that's going to influence so much of his later writing. So this is a really early romance rather than that legal sensation fiction that Collins is better known for. And it's the only time he really takes the classical world as his subject matter in any depth. He's still finding his style at this point. So Antonina, I think, reads a lot like the kind of classical romances that had been popular in the 1830s. And so things like The Last Days of Pompeii, it's very archaic sounding. There's lots of these and those. But what Collins does seem to be exploring in it is this idea of European racial and cultural heritage, and by extension, imperial masculinity of that period. The story of Antonina is a sort of forbidden romance between a young Roman woman and a Gothic warrior who shows up with Alaric's army in 410 AD to, to sack Rome. And the way Collins writes it, these two characters seem to represent the best of their respective races and culture. So Antonina likes music and culture, and she somehow managed to avoid falling into the dissipation of the late Roman Empire. Uh, And Collins, by the way, is having a lot of fun describing the the decadent parties and the flimsy minds and bodies of the Romans in this period and the Emperor Honorius feeding his chickens in Ravenna. But meanwhile, Collins' Goths are brutal and battle-hardened and they don't go in for that cultural malarkey. Uh, But Hermanric is the best of them. So he's not only a great warrior and a pretty handsome chap. I was really lucky uh, a couple of years ago to work with Collins' original manuscript of this novel and he's doodled on the front cover this sort of image of a... A, a warrior figure with this giant um, asterisk style mustache. So the mustache is clearly on Collins's mind here as a signifier of Germanic masculinity. But Hermanric also has this elevated capacity for affection and domestic life that's very reminiscent of the kind of mid-century domestic masculinity that John Tosh has identified in the in the 19, 18, sorry in the eighteen fifties. So essentially what the novel does in putting these two characters together is is it's inviting the reader to imagine the descendants that they would produce, the children, a sort of idealized European hybrid culture of Romans and the hearty vigor of the Germanic 
Teutonic races, which of course is very reminiscent of the way writers like Charles Kingsley in his lectures on the Roman and the Teuton were writing about Britishness itself. So while, uh, spoiler alert, things don't end particularly well for Antonina and Hermanric in 410 AD, the novel does seem to suggest that their union would have produced the kind of heirs that a couple of thousand years later, European cultural change does eventually produce, according to Victorian cultural and racial theory, in the British imperial race. So it's doing a sort of fantasy, a romance fantasy of a sort of origin myth of British imperial masculinity of the 1950s the 1850s i keep saying the 1950s apologies oh no no problem i'm just my mind is kind of blown by imagining a germanic masculine mustache <laughs> i will I, I took a photo of it i will hunt out the photograph and send it to you of collins's doodle on the oh manuscript my, yes please do maybe we can put it on our blog posting for this um for this podcast as well. That's just amazing. And also this idea, um, I'm sure somebody's written about almost an idea of a subgenre of ethno-romance. This idea that you would fantasize about, you know, in these uh, essentialist, reductionist ways of, of looking at two peoples and how they could produce these, you know, idealized offspring. It's kind of weird. It is. It's it's that that's a great term for what Antonina is in a way, an ethno romance. It's prefiguring the kind of um eugenic discourses that will of course come later in the century in Victorian racial theory. But the ideas are there and they're very much tying in with um scientific so pseudoscientific discussions about masculinity and the destiny of the race, which of course reads really disturbingly for modern yeah, those, readers. Yeah, those are dark terms now. Huh, and who would have guessed Wilkie Collins? Wow. Cool. Okay, let's move on to your fourth style of manliness. Uh, so this is kind of um, the decadent Rome, late Victorian masculinity. And had you asked me off the top of my head before reading your book, this is the one that I would have um, more quickly pictured because of how famous Oscar Wilde is and so forth. So, um, so here you examine... a pretty different turn to what we've been talking about so far towards themes of decadence and decline in association with late Victorians concern with the emergence of their own kind of, um, and I'll use our contemporary term. It sounds like they were worried about the metrosexual. So men like Oscar Wilde who go soft in comfortable cities rather than remaining tough at the expanding borders of empire, stuff like this. So it's almost like Rome is becoming a warning tale in this context. Have I got that right? Yes, very much so. I think there's that connection that they are making quite persistently commentators on empire at the period between the the hardiness and the kind of intactness of the male body, particularly the athletic kind of hearty male body and the the fates of the empire itself that the empire as a as an entity needs strong male bodies to protect it and so of course figures like Oscar Wilde we see this in the cartoons of him at the time emphasizes you say that softness so this is one of my favorite parts of the book to write because this is where we start to see Victorian culture really running up against that problem of drawing Roman parallels if you're going to represent your empire at its height as a new Rome then what do you do with the flip side of that legacy and what do you do with masculine figures and, and bodies that don't fit into that ideal and as ever there are different voices 
um, in this, and I've tried to capture these in the latter part of the book, but one of the most widespread ideas is that Rome becomes a shorthand for a constellation of socially and morally conservative ideas about degeneration, decadence, and any kind of perceived deviance from the normative. And perhaps the most, well, I'll give you the fun example first. Perhaps the most fun example I can think of is a late Victorian love of toga plays, which are these massively popular and very visually spectacular stage plays from the last quarter of the 19th century and into the 20th. They're popularized by a guy called Wilson Barrett, who was, let's say, the Tom Cruise of his day. He was a big star of the toga dramas, like Claudian, uh, a massively popular play at the time called The Sign of the Cross. Queen Victoria was a big fan. She wrote him a letter asking for photographs. uh, Gladstone wrote him fan mail. And he also had special shoes made, these big wedge sandals for playing these leading Roman roles because he was considered not quite statuesque enough to be a leading man without a little bit of help from the costume department. But the point of these dramas is that they are set in the Roman world. They are big, lavish sets, the Colosseum, there are special effects. I found a letter in an archive once between Barrett and his stage manager where Barrett is pushing really hard to have, to bring live seagulls into the theatre as part of the show. So you can see the kind of spectacle going on here. But the point of these dramas morally is that usually the hero, a great Roman man, converts to Christianity by the end. And you'll be more familiar with this drama, this kind of drama, than you think because it gets lifted pretty much wholesale into Hollywood in later decades. So that chariot scene from Ben-Hur is not original to the film. They put 16 live horses on a treadmill on the stage at Drury Lane Theatre in the original to- in the original toga play of Ben-Hur as a way of sort of emphasising this idea about Roman decadence being bad and this conversion to Christianity being part of the hero's tale, as well as just being a great excuse to enjoy some unabashed spectacle. But I guess the more chilling version of this is that Rome gets used as a moral warning or weapon by people like Max Nordau, who writes his treatise on gener- degeneration, in the 1890s, where he laments the degeneration of society and particular individuals and groups through parallels with the Rome of Nero and Caligula. So it it becomes part of the intensely homophobic logic of that text that Nordau conflates really simplistically, sort of conflates decadence and aestheticism with clinical disease, with non-normative sexuality. So his book is really responsible for crystallizing a lot of the homophobic language and logic that would carry through into the 20th century, particularly in the wake of the wild trials soon after that. So it's why I thought it was quite important for a book like this to look at masculine masculinity is plural and to avoid that trap of seeing masculinity as something defined solely in opposition to femininity, because by thinking masculinity as plural, complex and contested, we're sort of avoiding that flattening out process and acknowledging a lot of the pluralities and conflicts and bigotry sometimes happening within that gender divide and that Rome then becomes an arena in which those conflicts get fought and in some cases like Nordau it's not just a prop but sometimes something of a cultural weapon that can be used in those conflicts between between men absolutely um I was just wondering, uh, uh, you're mentioning these horses on treadmills and bringing in live seagulls. Uh, did they have any, did they acknowledge the irony of the Roman proportion of their own plays in, in doing these kinds of things as they were turning around and, and criticizing the decadence of Rome? 
there's a real um there's a sort of having your cake and eating it element about these plays isn't there they are they're super popular for spectacle but they are really popular with um religious audiences so you see lots of church visits coming to take in these plays on mass there are critics who write really scathingly about the audiences how the audience is like a congregation rather than an audience so I'm sure for many people the, the irony was not lost, but for some I think they read very sincerely. I, yeah. I, I guess you see parallels with the Hollywood epics of the 1940s and 50s, that kind of sincerity about the, the masculinity and the religiosity of them. Yeah, your comparison to Ben-Hur is uh, particularly illustrative, I think, because... Um depending on the audience, I think you'll get the same range of responses, right? You'll get the very, um, uh, I think some people treat it as a very spiritually moving kind of movie and experience, the way he uh, has a come to Jesus moment at the end. And um, and it's got all of these fantastical, extravagant um, elements throughout. I mean, it's not really on the same scale. I, I don't think it's bringing horses into a theater, but but still, I think we see a lot of the same kinds of things going on. And yet to some other audiences, it, it, it seems a little hollow and very typical Hollywood. Very much so. I mean, Wilson Barrett has, he, this is part of the Tom Cruise comparison. Wilson Barrett knows what sells as popular entertainment. And the, the religiosity of that, I think, is, is very much part of his marketing strategy so Barrett certainly knows when looking at his letters Barrett knows what he's doing even if sometimes the audience isn't isn't clocking it in quite the same way right <laughs> so you explained that while conservative writers at the Fendisiek emphasize degeneracy and death in their comparisons of the urban dandy in particular to decadent Rome authors such as Walter Pater and Oscar Wilde recuperate Rome to defy and deliberately antagonize this characterization in favor of what you term, I'll quote you here, aesthetic and decadent masculinities. So how did they go about this? Yeah, so Wilde and Pater in particular are great examples of the kind of cultural voices that take a different view of this idea of decline and fall. Pater in particular really refuses to see decline and fall as necessarily the result of that kind of moral or masculine degeneration that we talked about, a going soft, if you will. Pater is obviously a key thinker and a proponent of aestheticism, of art for its own sake, and particularly the idea that art doesn't need to have an overt moral message or function to be worthy of admiration, and that beauty can be found in decay and decline, whether it's a flower beginning to wilt or a civilization a civilization like Rome passing its peak and entering into that decline. So he sets his philosophical novel, Marius the Epicurean, in the Rome of the Antonines of Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus, beginning and the beginning of that period of decline. It's quite a striking contrast then to Max Nordau and his uses of imperial Rome uh, at the time. So um, Pater's in Pater's novel, the, the emperor, the soldier figure of the novel, Lucius Verus, is actually deeply unappealing. So he's presented as a kind of military meathead. He's a very affected character who's responsible, among other things, for bringing plague and disease to Rome. And that's the opposite of Nordau's pathologizing of aestheticism itself as a kind of medical and moral perversion. So here we have 
in Pater's work, the soldier of empire exposing the hypocrisy of that kind of thinking. Meanwhile, Marius and his friend from the title, Marius and his friend Valerian, with whom he has a very loving relationship, are pioneering new forms of poetry and language and philosophies of culture. So, and are in no way military men. So for Pater, decline and decay do not mean moral or masculine degeneration. He manages to delink these two in the way he writes about Rome. And then, of course, the decadent movement building on Pater's theories takes these ideas and kind of turns them up to 11. So writers like Oscar Wilde, they take that idea that art needs no moral function and look to Rome as a way of gleefully embracing the amorality of art. So if art doesn't need to be moral, writers like Wilde and Villiers de Lille Adam ask, can crime itself be a fitting subject for art? And we see this made literal, of course, in Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, where he describes um, the Romans as Dorian's, and I quote, ancestors culturally, and particularly the bad emperors of Rome, Tiberius, Caligula, Nero. And whilst, of course, the decadence movement is very playfully self-aware and writers like Wilde and, and Adam are trying to provoke Um, they're trying to sort of prod the bear of conservative criticism by looking to these more salacious bits of Roman history. I think they do find genuine things to admire in figures like Nero, particularly as part of Pater's philosophy of art. So Nero is the the emperor who famously fiddled while Rome burned. He played uh, and sang about the fall of Troy whilst watching the fire that he was later accused of starting himself in Rome. So clearly there's that criminal moral problem of Nero. But I think Victorian decadent writers, and particularly writers of the musical press, actually, I found an interesting sort of seam of articles in the musical press of the 1890s, seem to be starting a rehabilitation of Nero as an artist. So according to that kind of focused, amoral philosophy of decadent art, what seems to appeal about Nero is his impulse to create art, to compose music. He was notoriously an actor, and his famous last words were, qualix artifex pereo, what an artist dies in me. So there's a rehabilitation of sorts going on here for decadent masculinities and sexualities, but one which I think does get quite suddenly and violently derailed by the wild trials of 1901 and the media backlash against Wilde's decadence uh, that comes about because of the legal charges brought against him to do with his homosexuality in ways which, as I say, seem to crystallize some of those very homophobic attitudes and homophobic uses of ancient Rome that Nordau and others were propagating at the same time and which carry on into the 20th century. Yeah, let's move into the early decades of the 20th century here, because we see a number of significant changes for the British Empire, as well as to its manly men who are facing down modernity and the impending world war. So can you say a few words about masculinity and Roman reception in this context? Yeah, the book itself ends with the Great War of 1914. Obviously, it's a the war is a massive collective national trauma, but also a trauma for the young men at the front, both psychologically and physically. So it was interesting to look at how far the war poets from the trenches, Wilfred Owen and others, were using classical references to articulate some of that experience. I was particularly interested in the fact that Owen in particular is not from an elite background. And so we see the ways in which classical references and learning have made their way into his writing quite consistently, in this case, writing about trauma and conflict, but often through translated or popular channels. And I think that chimes with another change brought about by the war, which is that radical disrupting of class structures in Britain. So the changes in 
in class dynamics and those um, traditions of how boys were educated depending on their class are being changed and channeled. the sands are shifting as it were and we see that coming through in a lot of the war poetry elizabeth uh, vandever's book stand in the trench achilles is a wonderful uh, work on those dynamics so in the conclusion of the book i sort of end by looking at many of the same questions that commentators were discussing in the 1830s that kind of question about what education is needed to prepare young people in for my purposes, young boys, for the modern age, whether it's the modern age of the 1830s or the modern age of 1914, and what role does Rome, Latin, and classics more broadly play in that? So I'd like to ask you, um, and maybe this is an enormously broad question, but I'm just really curious to see if you see Roman narratives, tropes, or characters playing any particular role in conceptions of masculinity today in Britain or anywhere. Ooh. Um, certainly as I was finishing the book, I was asked about this quite a lot because there were lots of adaptations coming out. Gladiator had obviously been very popular and it featured a hero who was not only a great soldier, very dutiful, uh, but very committed to family. And I think that that started a, a little trend for for classical adaptations, but it was followed by a series of highly stylized, hyper-masculine, hyper-violent adaptations of ancient figures, and a lot of associated attention on questions like how to get abs like Spartacus or Leonidas. Um, So I do think there's an important discussion to be had there about, particularly about classical art and the bodily, often racialized legacies that classical art hands down to us and how we can continue to diversify representations of not just male bodies, all kinds of bodies through the classical tradition. Um, But I think definitely more recently nowadays, we are definitely seeing that kind of fresh and interesting um, reception starting to happen, particularly among young readers and writers and artists. So at Edge Hill University, I'm, I'm lucky to teach with some brilliant colleagues who run modules in young adult fiction and children's fiction and it's really great to see generations of students coming through with interests in Greek and Roman mythology that they've come to from children's fiction whether it's Percy Jackson the Hunger Games or comic series like Lore Olympus which is a retelling of the myth of Hades and Persephone and from video games of course which you know there's lots to be done on video games as narrative And so classics is very much alive, I think, in the minds of young readers and writers. And they're using these ancient stories to think about questions to do with gender, not just masculinity, genders and sexualities more broadly, and also the rights and roles of young people in society. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned video games because I had just recently watched a video on YouTube to try to learn more about I'm trying to remember the name of the island, if it's Knossos, the, the labyrinthian, um, the island of the labyrinth. And uh, it was a scholar doing like a documentary style discussion of the archaeology of the island, contemporary archaeology or where it's at now. And they were using um, Assassin's Creed, a, a recent Assassin, Assassin's Creed game that takes place there. And I guess it was done fairly well. I mean, they took a lot of liberties too. So the scholar was pointing out, well, this is fairly historically accurate. 
this is really invented or this fresco has been imported from this other famous Italian fresco. But the setting of this documentary is just this guy walking around in Assassin's Creed. And uh, you see the Roman Colosseum as well pop up because it's, you know, very fertile for the imagination in terms of these blood sport types of video games. But yeah, interesting stuff. Interesting times, classics and digital humanities and and reception studies it's um, a really a really fun nexus point to be studying it's a good time for reception studies i think but well laura i've taken up a lot of your time i could just chat with you on and on and on and on but i probably shouldn't so i want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show before we go though can you tell us what you're currently working on yeah um i currently i i have kind of two projects on the go at the moment one of them is a a project, a kind of partner project to classics and masculinity. I am curating an exhibition at the Atkinson Museum in Southport. You can explore it. We were just talking about digital humanities. You can explore it virtually at the moment and in VR. It's called Fatal Attraction, Lilith and Her Sisters. And it's about the long history of the femme fatale from the ancient world right through to the silver screen. So I've been spending a lot of my days thinking about femme fatales and femininity at the moment and that kind of cultural narrative of the the dangerous um, and powerful woman. And then completely separately from that, I am working on a new book, a new project on the Victorians and sugar. So thinking not about how the, the Victorians read and wrote about Rome, but how they thought and wrote about and used sugar in a century where the average person's intake of sugar increases by more than five times over the space of that Victorian period. Um, so I'm interested in how that substance then gets into the way that Victorian writers talk, essentially, and how sugar and its connections with slavery and its associations with femininity and juvenility gets bound up with the stories that Victorian culture tells itself about gender and race and class and how we've inherited a lot of those those legacies today fascinating um so for your you you mentioned that the fatal attraction uh is available to be explored online it is i can send i will send you the link and yeah do and then i'll make sure that's posted on the show notes and on our blog um posting as well so that listeners can check that out if they want to yeah so the atkinson in southport is a wonderful local museum in the northwest of england and they have fantastic collections of 19th century art but often 19th century art that is kind of classically inflected so you will find helen of troy in the exhibition you'll find lilith and medea and cleopatra and loads more Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on the show today. I so enjoyed your book. I really love talking with you about it. Um, so have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Laura Eastlake about her new book, Ancient Rome and Victorian Masculinity. If you'd like to find out more about Laura, you can find her on Twitter at Victorian Mask. So that's at Victorian M-A-S-C. And I've put the link to her exhibition at the Atkinson Museum, Fatal Attraction, Lilith and Her Sisters, in the show notes and on our blog. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. 
Do you think Rome has any influence on masculinity today, for example? Do you know any particularly Roman men? I'm curious. Uh, you can tell me about it on Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Lynnland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Or do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Literary Studies channel on Facebook, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about New Books in Literary Studies. 